And we loved it because it was just Mexican people. I thought the whole world was Mexican and I thought the whole world was Catholic because that's all we saw. Cruz Dominguez was born in 1940 in a camp next to the cotton fields owned by Goodyear Farms. She, along with hundreds of others, lived in five different camps that housed employees and their families. The tight-knit communities were the first permanent residents of what is now Litchfield Park. Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm your host, Kayla White. Back in February, we took a look at the impact Paul W. Litchfield and the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company had on the growth and development of the Southwest Valley. Now we're looking at the workers who made that possible. Today's episode brings you the history of the Mexican workers who were recruited to work in Arizona's cotton industry and the campsite communities that developed on Goodyear Farms. Producer Maritza Dominguez walks us through the impact Latino farm workers had on the development of the Southwest Valley. First, to understand how permanent housing was built for workers at the farms, we need to look back at the growth of the cotton industry. In past episodes, we've mentioned how there are two main factors to why farmers looked west to grow cotton. The first reason was due to the boll weevil infestation in the south. Those were the beetles that fed on cotton flowers. The second reason was because of the British wartime embargoes during the First World War, which impacted the import of cotton from Egypt to the United States. I spoke with Gloria Cuadras, an associate professor at Arizona State University, who has researched this topic at length. So Goodyear comes into Arizona and establishes the Southwest Cotton Company. They began to um, sort of mobilize a workforce. And so initially, they, of course, mobilized local workers and, and put the word out that they needed more workers. Congress passed the Immigration Act of 1917, which required a head tax and a literacy test for any workers coming to the United States. Although the Immigration Act targeted Asian immigrants, cotton growers in Arizona saw it as a barrier to recruit a Mexican workforce to harvest long staple cotton. The Secretary of Labor reinterpreted the Ninth Proviso within the Act to allow the recruitment of foreign contract workers in the United States. Gloria said this was the first sanctioned undertaking by the government, but it wasn't without the effort of cotton players in the Valley. Um, Goodyear lobbied, Arizona boosters lobbied, um, Arizona political officials lobbied, the governor lobbied Washington. And as a result, um, they ended up getting the waivers that they needed. Between 1917 and 1921, members of the Arizona Cotton Growers Association traveled to Mexico and recruited people to work the fields in Arizona. The laborers called these men enganchadores. They recruited where the railroads went, pretty much. So um, uh, many of the workers were from Sonora. And it's also important to consider that you know, the situation in Mexico, right, um, with the Mexican Revolution uh, that began in 1910, there were many displaced workers in Mexico. So they were looking for ways to subsist and ways to, to make wages. They could recruit people 16 years and older to a six-month contract, but would often get them extended. The sponsor was responsible for their transportation to the U.S. and back to Mexico, 
Not only did they recruit men, but they recruited families. It was actually preferred. Families were the unit of production that they wanted. Why? Um, because you would have the male head of household um, who would receive the wages, but you would also possibly, right, have a wife, a sister, children that could also work. They were more um, invisible, I would say. They were more unofficially part of the workforce. But, uh, so the work that they would do, right, picking cotton, would then be counted as as more of a household wage. By the early 1920s, the industry was going bust. The need for workers was no longer there. Gloria's research showed that roughly 4,000 Mexican workers were displaced and abandoned by the ACGA. Many of them traveled to Phoenix from the West Valley to find help. Eventually, the Mexican government stepped in and allocated $17,000 to transport workers back to Mexico. And according to Gloria, some of these men never even saw the wages they were promised. Uh, there's conflicting reports about whether the ACGA came through on their agreement. Um, they were asked to by the governor and certainly the president of Mexico. But um, there's conflicting stories about whether that actually took place. Not every Mexican recruited by the ACGA went home. Some found work in Arizona, while others traveled outside the state in search of jobs. The Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company owned multiple farms. There were farms in the Chandler area, the now Sun City area, and another in the Litchfield Park area. They sold two of the farms and focused on the one in the Southwest Valley. Instead of just focusing on the cotton, the company began to diversify their products. So they weren't just growing cotton. And I think this is where the company town really starts taking shape. They had invested heavily in the area, in the roads and the cotton gins and whatnot. And so they decided they were here to stay. And so then there were a portion of workers, right, a number of workers who were hired on a more permanent basis, right, for the Southwest Cotton Company. And that's where you have the camps evolve. This included Cruz Dominguez's family, who you heard from at the top of the episode. Her grandparents were the first generation to live in the camps. Her paternal grandparents worked in the Chandler farm, but when that closed, they moved to the Southwest Valley farm. After Cruz's maternal grandmother was left a widow with five children, she moved her family around the state in search for a job. First, they went to a small eastern Arizona town called Coolidge, and then they went to work at the Sun City farm. In 1933, her grandmother made one last move. So when they found out that there was openings at the ranch here, they decided to come over here because the wages were lower, but they had free housing. So that's how they got here. Cruz's parents met at a camp party and married in 1936. Her family settled into one of the five campsites. My dad was in Camp 53, and he wanted to move us to Camp 53, and we did. So there were three generations, my grandfather, my father, and us living and working. Each camp was named after a plot of land on which the camps were set up. There were two types of housing. Some lived in tents, and others lived in wood-framed houses. Now at 81 years old, Cruz reflects on her childhood home. And the houses were so small, 300 to 500 feet. So they didn't have any irrigation, they weren't insulated, they didn't have any heating. The heating was the wood-burning stoves. 
Goodyear Farms supplied the materials for the farmers to build the homes. Gloria told me that the houses gave them a place to settle, a place to call home. The families were a tight-knit community that helped one another. They traded eggs and milk or butter when they needed. Each person had a role at the farm. A large portion of the farm workers picked cotton, but they had more jobs than just that. Primarily, there was all Mexican people working. But in picking the cotton, they were paying them a dollar for 100 pounds or $2.50 for 100 pounds. So these people worked really hard and they were hardworking people and they worked hard because of their families. They loved their families and they wanted to provide for them. So my grandfather was a blacksmith. My dad did everything from planting the cotton to working irrigation to working with the horses. They did all kinds of stuff. So. While the majority of the men worked the field, some of the women worked at the Wigwam Resort. It was a resort where the executives from Ohio and other people in the agricultural industry stayed when they visited the farms to observe the company's projects. A lot of the women worked as maids for the resort. A lot of them brought stump home and washed them at home and took them back. A lot of linens and stuff, they did that. And some of my aunts worked 25 years being there and making the beds and making cleaning and making sure all that stuff was taken care of. So they did all kinds of jobs. They, they never stayed home. The wages were low, but the access to housing was significant for them. They felt like they had all they needed. Cruz didn't grow up with store-bought clothes or toys. She remembers her mother making her clothes out of potato sacks and making dolls out of paper catalogs. As a child, she felt happy there. And we always had stuff to do. My dad always built kites for the boys from the tree limbs and stuff. And then they would make the paper, make the kite and get rags in the tails and play out there and, and stuff. And then when it rained, we'd play it in the puddles. Apart from work, the communities would gather for church, weddings, parties, and sports. Paul Litchfield, the company president at the time, encouraged these bonding events. Practicing Catholicism was important to many who lived on the camps. At the beginning, they had no church, so they'd gather in a person's home on Sundays for Mass. Litchfield took notice of this. Um, he provided the funds for the community to uh, build this church. And so um, uh, in the interviews, people talk about how their father built the benches and you know how they contributed to, um, to the church and all the weddings and celebrations they had there, the Christianings. Uh, so it was a very, very important part to this community. The company also provided food for events like the Mexican Day of Independence, and sponsored the men's baseball club. Goodyear Farms provided, um, I guess, baseball equipment and uniforms for the men, and they used to play on weekends, and their last, the names was Los Diablos, the Devils, and they used to play other cities and stuff, and that was a recreation. The whole family would go and watch them play ball and stuff. Things started to change when the Americans entered the Second World War in 1941. In a grant-funded documentary produced by Gloria, called Voices from Mexican-Americans of Litchfield Park Oral History Project, she spoke with Miguel Bejerano about his service. At 18, Miguel knew there was a chance he'd be drafted into the Army. It was a hard reality for his parents to accept. So we waited supper one day, and, and my mom said, I don't want my kids to go to service. 
So my, my dad said, well, the only way we, they won't take him is to go back to Mexico. So I got up, I said, Dad, I'm not going back to Mexico. I was born here and I'm going to serve this country. So they dropped me. I went down and got a physical. And I packed my physical, come back and give the papers to the captain there. Oh, good. L.D. Donnie said, you're in the army now. He was one of nearly 100 men from the camps who were drafted or volunteered to join the armed forces and serve in the war. Another woman from the camps, Armida Moren Bicera, remembers going to the trains together to see off their families. And when the soldiers were on furlough, they'd have parties for their arrival and for their departure. Unfortunately, not every man came home from the war. Cruz recalls hearing about the first casualty. And the first one killed from the camps was their son, Joaquin, Joaquin del Castillo. And the other gentleman that was killed was Armando Orante and another one, Frank Romero. With a good chunk of the workforce gone, the women stepped in. Here's how Belen Soto Moreno remembers that time period. Some of the women worked out in the field. Somebody had to do the, the, the work that the men couldn't do. They worked out in the fields. Um, hoeing, and then quite a few of them worked at Goodyear Aircraft, where they were called Rosie the Riveter. The war expanded the men's worldview outside of the five camps they knew. Some men went to the South Pacific, others went to Europe. One of Cruz's uncles was stationed in Japan and brought porcelain dolls for each of her sisters. After the war, many of the families realized there were more opportunities beyond what the farm could offer them. That's when families started to leave. In 1948, Cruz's father moved them out of the camps. My dad, this is what he said, so this is what he said, that they started bringing Anglos from Ohio and they were put in charge of the Mexican people. And the Mexicans had to teach them what to do because they didn't know it was just coming out here. So. They decided they're not earning the wages or anything, so they decided we're leaving. They bought a small parcel of land in Avondale and built their home made of adobe. Her grandparents stayed at the camps until they were dismantled in 1986 after a British financer named James Goldsmith bought 11.5% of the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. Judy Cook with the Litchfield Park Historical Society explained to me how this impacted the farms. He got a hold of this huge chunk of stock, and he um, was trying to force Goodyear into limiting what they were producing. And uh, what he was really doing was he wanted to make some money off of this. So Goodyear got all of their resources together and bought that stock back so they could get control over the company. So they got the stock back, and because they got the stock back, they were cash poor. And so they had to start selling off the holdings that they had, and so this was one that they did. The company offered to rehouse the remaining families at the camp to a trailer park in Kenyala Village. Or they could take a stipend of $10,000 and find their own housing. Camp 52 had a reunion party to commemorate their community. So when Goodyear sold the land, um, almost all of it was absorbed into Goodyear. 
the city of Goodyear, which was incorporated before Litchfield Park was. Litchfield Park was the last of the four cities to be incorporated. Litchfield Park was incorporated a year later in 1987. While the camps are gone, absorbed by other Southwest Valley cities, the evidence of those farms are now replaced by grocery stores, an airport, and real estate. Those who lived in the camp have left their mark on the Southwest Valley. The children and descendants of those workers have made a name for themselves in the community. Just to name a few, there is Belen Soto Moreno, who lived in the camps. Her teachers saw a promising future for her. I said, what I really want to do is I want to be a teacher. You want to be a teacher? Yes. She took her finger, she pointed at me. And she says, you are going to college and you are going to become a teacher. But Belen didn't think her parents would allow her to go to college and pursue her dreams. So her teacher, Miss Ibarra, went to the fields and spoke with her mother and father. When Belen arrived home, she found her mother at the kitchen table waiting for her. And she says, ¿Quieres ir al colegio? ¿De veras quieres ir al colegio? Her mother told her, Do you really want to go to college? Sí, mamá. Si de veras, de veras quieres ir, tienes mi bendición. She said, yes, mom. And her mother told her, if you really want to go, you have my blessing. Belen went to Arizona State College, now called Northern Arizona University, and got her undergraduate degree. She furthered her education by getting her master's degree at ASU. Now she has an elementary school named after her in the Litchfield Elementary School District. It's called the Belen Soto Elementary School. Another prominent member of the community was Esteban Steve Jem, who served on the Tolleson City Council and was vice mayor at one point. John Lopez served 32 years with the Avondale Police Department and rose through the ranks to become chief of police. Growing up, his father taught him a lesson that stuck with him. He said, listen, if you want to achieve anything in life, you got to get with it. Nobody's going to give you a hand and pull you up. you got to make a move yourself. John Lopez died in 2009. There are countless others whose legacies thrive in the valley. For Gloria, it's important others know these stories. It is so critically important to document the stories. You know, not only of the Mexican community, but the indigenous communities and the communities of color here uh, in Arizona to have a fuller understanding of how this state came to be, right? And as, I think as long as we can uh, continue to enrich our knowledge of that history, um, I think we're, we'll all have a greater sense of belonging to this state. Hey listeners, it's me, Kayla, again. What a heartfelt story of a community with a long history in Arizona. If you're interested in learning even more about these camps, you can go to Litchfield Park Historical Society Museum, located on Litchfield Road and Camelback Road, or visit their website, lphsmuseum.org. The Society plans to expand their museum, as reported by Joshua Bowling in 2020, in Paul Litchfield's former home. As a note, audio in today's episode comes from, quote, Voices from the Camps of Litchfield Park. 
If you are interested in learning more about the history of the Southwest Valley, submit your questions to us at valley101.azcentral.com. And if you're a regular listener of our show, please consider supporting it by subscribing to azcentral.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Also, if you're a fan of Arizona politics, be sure to check out The Gaggle, our sister podcast that breaks down local issues and helps you keep up with the state's political news. All right, see you next week.